Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 17 and 18. The message entitled Jesus, Prince of Peace. The wealth of the believer by the love of God is being declared by Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, the first division. The position of the believer focuses on the transaction of redemption in chapter 1. The position of the believers focuses on the transition of salvation, a beautiful picture of man reconciled to God and man in verse in chapter 2. Our new position in Christ is alive in the heavenlies, depicted by the process of salvation in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Then our new relationship in Christ, a new man on earth, depicts the product of salvation in chapter 2, verse 11, down to 22. We saw the new relationship of the Gentiles to God. And this prompted Paul to ask them not to forget their natural position by remembering three things in verses 11 through 13. They were to remember the Jews looked down upon the Gentiles in verse 11. Now, God never did, but the Gentiles did. In verse 12, they were to remember the pitiful lost condition of their Gentile condition. It's easy to forget what we were. Or maybe we take on a different perspective. We weren't as bad as we were. And then thirdly, in verse 13, to remember their new position as Gentiles, to see the high privilege and honor that God has given to us, though we don't deserve it. So we shouldn't be concerned with what men and women think about us. We should always remember where we came from, but we should always live as who we are in Christ Jesus. Very important. Then in 14 to 18, Paul declared the result of the new reconciled relationship of the Jews and the Gentile to God and each other because the whole thing is Jew-Gentile one. In 14, the peaceful unity between Jew and Gentile was given to us. The middle wall partition broken down. In 15, the peaceful tranquility between Jew and Gentile. No more hostility. They can sit down and eat together. Talk together. We lose sight of that because we weren't, we, we weren't in that culture. It was just thick. They hated each other. And then in 16, the peaceful affinity between a Jew and Gentile. Both reconciled to God. Both needing the same gospel, as we'll see. Now, 17 and 18, Paul declared the victorious announcement of, his, of this good news. And it's evident by three truths. Let me read here. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. The victorious announcement of this good news, this gospel, is evident by these three truths. First, verse 17, Jesus preached one message to Jew and Gentile. One message. Second, in verse 18, Jesus presented one meteor for Jew and Gentile. And then in verse 18 also, the third point, Jesus poured out 
one spirit on Jew and Gentile. Jesus preached one message to the Jew and Gentile is the first truth. Look at verse 17. The apostle Paul declared Jesus was the first to preach this gospel. Listen to the words. And he came and he preached peace. Now some teach that this refers to the earthly ministry of Jesus, but the interpretation is wrong. Jesus never preached during his earthly ministry that Jew and Gentile were one in the body at that time. His earthly ministry was a transition. Jesus preached they would be through his atoning death and resurrection. Listen to John 4, 22-23. He speaks to the woman of Samaria. You worship what you do not know. We know, you, Gentile, Samaritan, we, Jews, what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. So it wouldn't be long. Jesus said, And other sheep I have of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock, one shepherd. John ten sixteen. Paul is referring to the ministry of Jesus after the resurrection in context and in sequence. Follow Paul's thoughts here. <clears throat> Notice in the context is what Paul has just mentioned, what Jesus accomplished as fact on the cross in verse 16. It's looking back to that. That's the context. He reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God through the cross. He reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body through the cross. He thereby put to death the enmity of Jew and Gentile through the cross. That's the context. Now the sequence of time is after what took place at the cross and is very clear by the Greek grammar. The word came is a participle aorist active, literally having come. Follow the sequence. It's after verse 16. After the cross, having come, which implies the resurrection. The errors tense is exactly as those in verse 16. All are historical and follow in sequence, the Greek scholar Lenski says. Then notice that Paul indicated the content of the message preached by Jesus. You ready for it? Peace. What did Jesus say when he, after the resurrection? It says, Peace. When he appeared to the disciples, peace be unto you. The gospel of peace was in effect in order now. Everything had been done. The word preached means to bring good tidings, announcing good news. The word used is used 55 times in the New Testament for the gospel. In fact, the other time the letter that is used here in the letter, is in chapter 3, verse 8, where it says, To me, who am less than all, the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach, there it is, among the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The tense is the indicative heiress, and here's the key, the middle middle voice, which indicates Jesus himself did the declaring. 
So here's the affirmation that it's after the cross. Jesus did it. He preached. From this word, we get the word to evangelize. The gospel. The word peace points us back again to the previous verse, verse 16. We saw it last time, Irene. We get the word or the name Irene from it. As noted before, it's something joined together was previously broken or apart, fractured or unreconciled. But now it is put back together. Jesus becomes the object of our peace, breaking down the barriers of Jew and Gentile through the cross, as he said in verse 14. So he is our literal peace in the person of Christ, Messiah. But he is the one who gives us the peace that passes all understanding. The peace that he gives us is for justification. Jew and Gentile one peace before God, first of all. So the peace that he's talking about here is peace with God. Jesus is the one who removes the hostility between Jew and Gentile, able to live in peace, as he said in verse 15. But notice Jesus declared the good news to those who appeared after being raised from the dead. Which once again confirms what Paul is saying here. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, the two men on the road to Emmaus, and the twelve more than once. And declared the finished work of redemption and reconciliation by the cross and the resurrection. Mark 16:9, Luke 24 and many other passages. Luke records important details about Jesus prior to the ascension to heaven. Listen to Acts 1, 1 through 3. The former account I made of Theophilus of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So this is the time that Paul is indicating, those 40 days. And then, of course, he ascended, where he is declaring the effectiveness, the efficiency, and the full authority of the gospel for Jew and Gentile to be saved. Now notice the Apostle Paul here is quoting the Old Testament in fulfillment of this gospel. To you who were far off and to those who were near. The text is found in the prophet Isaiah chapter 57 verse 19. It says, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord Yahweh. And I will heal him. The context of Isaiah is dealing with the people of Israel who are rebellious against God. The double proclamation of peace gives emphasis to the compassionate plea of God, his love for them. And Hosea, he says, oh Israel, how can I give you up? His love for Israel compelled him. Now, Isaiah has been warning the people of Israel to repent. 
The authority is God's through Isaiah, says the Lord Yahweh. This was not Isaiah's words, it's not his message, but he was being the channel by which God was speaking through. The cry is one of offering repentance to those near and far from God to heal them from their sin. So the quote is applied by Paul for the accomplished reconciliation for Jew and Gentile, though. Often in the scriptures, as you know, prophecy has a twofold fulfillment. Sometimes there's even three, but usually just two. There is a short-term fulfillment, and then there is a long-term fulfillment. Two examples will verify this fact. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 13, we have the prophecy to David by God um, uh, through Nathan. Uh, God gave to David the short-term prophecy that his son Solomon would sit upon the throne, and he did. And then God gave to David the long-term prophecy of Messiah through his line, which did. So you have the short-term and the long-term in the same prophecy. We also have the prophecy of Daniel about the coming Messiah, as you uh, uh, have studied with us in Daniel 9, 24 down to 27. The short-term fulfillment was the rejection of their Messiah by the Jews at his first coming in Daniel 9, 24 to 26, as you find in Matthew 21 and the other Gospels also. The long-term fulfillment is the acceptance of the Antichrist as their Messiah seven years prior to the second coming of the Messiah in Daniel 9, 27. So you have the short-term, you have the long-term. And you have this often in the scriptures. This is the case. The text of Isaiah was a prophecy long-term-wise about those who would believe in Jesus, Jew and Gentile, becoming one in Christ Jesus. Making both one, creating in himself one new man from the two, both reconciling one body, as chapter 2, verse 14, 16, and 17 has declared. God sees the world in three categories. Paul gives it to us in 1 Corinthians 10, 32. Listen, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks, Gentiles, or the church of God. So you are either a Jew who's not born again, or a Gentile who's not born again, or you may be Jew or Gentile born again, and you're the church of God. God sees only three categories of people in the world. No other. He keeps things simple, clean. The message of the gospel of peace is like being offered a U.S. passport. It makes no difference if you are white, black, brown, yellow, or red. All of us are Americans, one nation under God, as we hold that U.S. passport. That's the same with what Paul is saying. Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. All the other differences do not affect 
our citizenship in heaven. We're Christians. And yet the world is ever around you trying to divide you by your race, by your culture, by your whatever it is. And today our nation is just head over hills, so fractured. Have you ever thought about the words that have been redefined? How contrary they are to their true meaning? The word diversity today is used for equality. Diversity means you're different. You're not equal. That's what it means in the dictionary. But the new dictionary, the new glossary, appeals to the political correctness. It's an upside-down dictionary. It's not a right-side-up dictionary. It's contrary to what it's saying. So it's like you saying, well, I'm going to start saying the word, you know, hi. And every time I say hi, I really mean bye. Well, you can do that. And you can teach it to 100 people. And every time you see those 100 people, when you say hi, you mean bye. They'll understand you. And the more people you teach that, the more they'll understand that. But you've got to go out of your way to, to indoctrinate people, to, to teach them the reverse of what it really means, right? And that's what's taking place. And so you as who live here in this world, you have to be careful of the culture and the agendas and political agendas of men and everything else that would try to divide you as Christians to pull you away to their categories of human beings. We're all Christians. We all agree on what the Bible says. We all have one Lord. We belong to one body. It makes no difference where you live, how much money you have, what kind of car you drive, what kind of clothes you wear. It doesn't make any difference to me. And it doesn't certainly makes much more no difference to God. <laughs> Jesus, as you know, gave five great commissions. Listen to them. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. It's a participle. As you go, when you're going, when you go. In other words, there was never any doubt of not going. <laughs> it's not a choice. It's a participle. Mark 16, 15 through 16 says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now you would think if predestination and election was so important to be understood the way Calvinism, that God would have put this in the Great Commission. But preach only to those who are elect. Not everybody can be saved. That's not what the Bible says. He says, go preach to all. Luke 24, 46-48 says, And he said to them, Thus it is written, that thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. All the nations, all the world. 
Why? Because Jesus died for the whole world. Jesus didn't die for the chosen frozen. He died for all. But you should receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you should be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8. Five great commissions. The believers are the one who preach the gospel of peace now, not Jesus. He did it for 40 days. Now we do it. John 2021. 20, we go preach in the authority of Jesus, not our own. So Jesus said to them, peace to you. There's that word. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So if I'm born again, I have an obligation to communicate the gospel to those around me. Missions begins, evangelism begins wherever you're at. But missions begins the first step outside of this door. From here, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. We preach as representing Jesus, not ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says, Now, then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I, having known what it is to be a sinner and lost and blind, held captive by Satan, and then having been freed and saved and forgiven, I know exactly how people feel without Christ and how they live and the destruction they bring upon themselves. So I, having experienced that lifestyle and now experienced the blessed life of Christ, my desire should naturally be to try to communicate to them so they can have the same thing. Because it's the love of God that constrains us, right? Second Corinthians 5.11 We know the judgment that awaits the sinners also. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God and also trust are well known in your conscience. So knowing the terror, the judgment that awaits a sinner who dies without Christ, horrible. As much as we may dislike certain people, regardless who they are because of their lifestyle or what they do or say, as Christians, we shouldn't want to see anybody perish. We want to see every person have an opportunity to be saved. Because that's for eternity. Jesus excludes no one, but only the one who rejects the gospel of peace. In 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24, Paul says, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Greek, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom 
of God. So it's Christ crucified. We don't preach ourselves. We preach and God saves sinners. We save no one. So continuing daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It's a process as they were being saved. The Lord added, I as a pastor have never saved anybody. I have not added anything to the kingdom of God. I teach, I proclaim the word, and God through the Holy Spirit convicts individuals of sin and saves them if they bow their heart to the Lord. So Jesus preached one message to Jew and Gentile. So what should we say to the philosophy of the church today who says that we need to be sensitive to the different cultures around us? <laughs> There's only one gospel. Don't mess with the food. Don't add salt. Don't put pepper. Don't put hot sauce in it. Leave it alone. You're not a cook. You're a waiter boy. You're a waitress. Just serve the food. Don't cater to the culture. Leave it alone. Second truth. Jesus presented one mediator. For Jew and Gentile. Three words. For through him. The Apostle Paul is thinking of the sequential order. Notice. The ascension of Christ marked the end of his earthly ministry. And the beginning of his heavenly ministry. The office is undeniably limited to one person. Jesus Christ. The word through means by the means or the channel to acquire or to receive anything. Through him is emphatic in the Greek. Jesus is the grounds and reason for all we are and all we have. In Christ appears three times in that long sentence of the first chapter, verse 3, 10, and 12. Four times, including verse 1. In him refers in union by being in Christ Jesus, mentioned six times, seven in various forms in the first three verses of chapter one again. In him, by him, through him, of him, of whom. There are 16 references to Jesus by name, title, pronouns, or various combinations in the first 15 verses of the first chapter of the letter. Over 30 in the entire book. Six chapters. There's no one else but Jesus. That's why Paul tells Timothy that there's one God and one meter between God and man, the man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5. No one else. Now notice Jesus made this truth clear on earth. Jesus prayed to the Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given to me to do in John 17, verse 4. That is the Holy of Holies. That is the Lord's Prayer. Not our Father who art in heaven. Jesus couldn't pray that prayer. There's, that, there's a petition for forgiveness of sins. Jesus had no sin. In John 17, he's speaking to the Father before he goes back to him. 
In Acts 1.11, Jesus exited or existed from eternity, as you know, and became man at a set time for the purpose of redeeming man. And then he returned to the Father in heaven, ascending from the Mount of Olives in a glorified body on the 40th day. Peter puts it this way, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having made subject to him, 1 Peter 3, 22. You see, the Apostle Paul also understood the ascension of Christ was to be for the purpose of being the head of the church. Jesus put all things under his feet. He gave him the, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Jesus ascended up above all heavens that he might fill all things to give apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers for the perfecting of the saints. He's going to tell us in chapter 4, verse 10 through 12. To equip the saints to do the work of ministry. They did not be tossed to and fro with every one of doctrine. Jesus, the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have, here's the word, preeminence, Colossians 1.18. Preeminence, number one. No one else. But also notice the Apostle Paul knew the exaltation of Christ was to the right hand of the Father's throne, not his throne or the throne of David. This is the throne of the Father. There's a difference. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. Jesus made the distinction there that he would sit upon the throne of his glory to judge the nations. His throne. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. This is the Father's throne. He promised his disciples that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sat on the throne of his glory, they would sit also on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. The book of Acts and the book of Hebrews says that the heavens must receive him until the time of restoration of all things. But until then, he sits on the Father's right hand till his enemies be made a footstool. Acts 3.21, Acts 2.34-35, Hebrews 10.12-13, and many other passages. Peter distinguishes the two thrones also. Listen to Acts 15.16. James confirms this in the First Church Council, that he would visit the Gentiles to take a people for his name, and after he would return to build again the tabernacle of David and sit upon it. Paul puts it this way. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. 1 Timothy 3.16. But it's at the right hand of the Father. The Father's throne. The Apostle Paul indicated the spiritual benefits of the believer here. And they're only through the exalted Messiah who sits at the right hand 
of the Father as our interceding high priest. This is what's going on right now. Listen to Hebrews 9.24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which was copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not the old tabernacle on earth, a picture of heaven, but the real one in heaven. In Romans 8.34, he says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who dies and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus is sitting there in human form, a glorified body, being God, making intercession for us. When he comes back for us, he'll be in that body and we will be just like him. A glorified body. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says, Therefore, in all things that he had, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted... He is able to aid those who are tempted. In other words, because he became man, yet without sin, he knows what it is to be tempted and he knows what it is to, uh, to sense that difficulty and he can meet our needs. Because he is God who became man. He became the last Adam. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has pressed or passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Notice that Having a high priest who can sympathize with us. Being tempted in all points as we are. We have the tendency to think at times, well, God doesn't understand what my situation. He knows your situation exactly. When it says he was tempted in all points as we are, it's not an exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. It's literal. He was rich, he became poor. He was God, he became man. He became hated, persecuted, scoffed at. The birds of the air had nests, the foxes had holes, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Wow. Hebrews 6.20 says, Where the forerunner, has entered for us, even Jesus, having become the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 6.20. Not according to the order of Aaron, from the tribe of Levi, but the tribe of Judah. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, or appropriate 
who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. The priests had to offer sacrifice first for themselves to get right with God. And then they would offer the sacrifice of the people. And they had, they had to do that every time. Jesus did that once and for all. Doesn't repeat itself. That's why the Roman Catholic Mass and the communion, which they call transubstantiation, is blasphemous. Because they declare that the literal host turns into the literal body of Christ. And the literal wine turns into the literal blood of Christ. That means that Jesus dies every time they have a mass. That contradicts the scriptures. And it's an insult to the efficaciousness of the atonement, the finished work. They call it a bloodless sacrifice. (laughs) It's blasphemous. You remember Job cried out. And he said, there's no daysman between us, an umpire. To lay his hands on both God and man in Job 9.33. Jesus is the answer to Job's problem. There's no one to lay his hand upon us both. One on God, one on Job. Jesus took the hand of the Father. Jesus took the hand of man. He took on the sins of man, being God. And he died. And he joined us together to the Father, as we'll see, by his sacrifice, by his blood, his precious blood. He already saw that last time. You know, prior to 9-11 of 2001, America was, for the most part, respectful towards Christianity in the name of Jesus. But the turn of the century moved us into a post-Christian nation that is becoming more hostile to Christians and Christianity. Now, this does not mean that there are no Christians in America, but the Christian influence and recognized authority is no longer the overwhelming majority. The amoral culture and the indoctrination of humanistic socialism with this new vocabulary of political correctness, as I've mentioned before, has sought and is seeking to silence those who disagree with them by intimidation, bullying, marginalizing people, or merely writing them off as unintelligent or crazy. And it works. People cower. People become fearful. Listen to Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. These progressive liberals and intellectual numbskulls feel they're so superior and they're destroying themselves in this world. It's amazing what smart what stupid things smart people do and say to their own hurt. 
The hostility and intolerance to the name of and person of Jesus is evident all around us today. Christianity is banned and excluded from all public life. And it will continue to be pressed till it's eliminated completely. This includes taking a Bible or speaking about Jesus in school or a job. Yet Islam is tolerated and taught in many of our public schools. Right now. Certainly Pasadena School District teaches it. Oprah Winfrey brashly stated in her TV program years back that Jesus was not the only way and could not be the only way. And a handful of courageous women and men in their audience stood up and just confronted and rebuked her. She didn't know how to handle it. <laughs> Amazing. Number one deceiver in the United States along with Olsen. <laughs> Greater than Olsen because whatever Oprah puts on, it sells millions. What judgment? To those much is given, much more is required. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father by me in John 14, 6. That destroys every other person, every other way. Simple. There is no other name given under heaven and earth whereby men must be saved. Acts 4, 12. Pretty limited to me. One name. Not Allah. Not Buddha. Not Muhammad. Not Daffy Duck. Jesus is the only mediator, First Timothy 2, 5, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One way, one name, one mediator. The gospel is really not confusing. God has gone out of his way to make the gospel simple, clear, intelligible. The problem is the rebellion of man's heart. He hates God. Doesn't want to bow his heart to God. In fact, he has explained God away. Nietzsche said God was dead in the 60s. No, Nietzsche's dead. <laughs> Jesus presented one mediator for Jew and Gentile. There is no other mediator. Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. Notice thirdly, in verse 18 still, Jesus poured out one spirit on Jew and Gentile. We both have access by one spirit to the Father. The Apostle Paul declared the connection and relationship of Jesus to the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, as you know. Omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent. Everywhere at the same time. He being God became man through the incarnation. John 1, 1 and 14 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was a God, and God was a Word, and the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He limited Himself 
for a set time, 33 years, for the purpose of the redemption of man through the atonement on the cross. So Jesus limited himself in a physical body for a set time. But being God, he still knew what was in the heart of man. He could still, by depending on the Father, do miracles. But he limited himself for certain things for a set time. Jesus came to bring both Jew and Gentile to the first person of the Trinity. Notice, the Father. Equally omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him or revealed Him. So the Father has never come down. When you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that's Jesus, a Christophany. It's Jesus who reveals the Father, no one else. John 4.23 again, But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers have worshipped the Father in spirit and the truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. He's excluding none. He's not just reaching out to the Jew. He's not just reaching out to the Gentile, but both. To make them the church of God. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. John three thirty seven. God's heart is open. We all qualify. We're sinners. Fall short of the glory of God. Under the wrath of God. John eight twenty nine says, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please the Father. What an incredible statement. Who here can lift their hand and say, I always do what Jesus tells me. Please lift it up so we can laugh. We all fall short, don't we? And God is faithful to abide and to forgive us and to strengthen us and to be with us. I and the Father are one, John 10, 30, it says. You see, Jesus and the Father would send then the Holy Spirit to do the work in and through the believer. You have the whole Trinity here. The connection, the relationship. Listen to John 14, 16 through 18. And I will pray the Father, Jesus speaking to the disciples the night before he was betrayed. And he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans will come to, but come to you. John 14, 16 through 18. The fact that the Holy Spirit would be with them forever. Is not talking about the fact that. Once you're saved. You're saved, you can't walk away. The context of John 14, 16, and 18 is this. Jesus is talking to them. He came for 33 and a half years, and now he was leaving. He says, I've come, I'm leaving. The Holy Spirit, I and the Father are going to send, and he's never going to leave because he's the one that convicts the world of sin and saves people. Even when the Lord removes his church prior to the tribulation, the Holy Spirit is left behind to save people. 
So the contrast of being forever with you has nothing to do with eternal security, as people teach. But it has to do that Jesus came and he was leaving, the Holy Spirit would come and he would never leave. Because he carries out the ministry of Jesus Christ. Is that clear? It's real simple. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, and that's the Paracletus, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Notice that. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit only illuminates, gives you understanding about the words of Jesus. He never asks, he never takes away, he never contradicts. We're going to read that he never speaks of himself. He's the silent witness of Jesus. John fifteen twenty six. But when the Helper comes, when I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. A lot of times what happens is people start glorifying the Holy Spirit more than Jesus Christ. Be careful of that. The Holy Spirit never speaks of himself. He always speaks of Jesus and points people to Jesus. He brings no attention to himself. Ever. We're not commanded to pray to the Holy Spirit. And how often you hear Christians pray to the Holy Spirit. We're to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. That's the order. Never the Holy Spirit. Christian pastors and churches do it all the time. Jesus continuing in John 16, 7 through 11 said this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If Jesus would have stayed here, the Holy Spirit would never come. Jesus could only be at one place at one time. But the Holy Spirit is all present. It's absolutely essential that I leave. If I don't leave, he won't come. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So we proclaim the message, but the Holy Spirit convicts and saves. No one else. John 16, 13-14 says, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority. Underline that. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, and he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. How much clearer could that be that the Holy Spirit never says anything except what you find in your Bible? He turns the light on to the words in your Bible, God's revelation. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that you shall pray to the Father for you, but for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God, I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world. Again, I have the world. I leave the world, 
and go to the Father, John 16, 26 to 28. So in John 14, 15 and 16, Jesus is preparing the disciples for his departure. They don't like it. And he's telling them the Holy Spirit's going to come to take his place. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the unifying oneness of Jew and Gentile to come before the Father. What is it? Paul includes himself. Listen, we both have access. Paul, being a Jew, identifies himself as one of them, with the Gentiles. We is emphatic. Plural pronoun. The word have is the indicative present active and a continuous ongoing privilege that Jews and Gentiles have access to the Father anytime, any day no holidays the word access means the act of bringing to or towards the root word is to open a way the word was used of a person who introduced a person to the, a king in Persia in the royal court a royal introduction, but it's to the Father. The word appears two other times in the New Testament, and it's for Jesus. Listen to Ephesians 3.12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. The Holy Spirit and Jesus are tied together. And the Father is tied together. The three are one. Through whom also we have access by faith into the grace which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5.2 You see the Holy Spirit is the unifying witness ushering us both Jew and Gentile because we have, listen, the same Father. We have the same Savior. We have the same Father. Jesus said, He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life, and the wrath of God abides upon him. He who has the Son has the Father. He who does not have the Son has not the Father. If you want the Father, you've got to have the Son first. If you try to go to the Father without the Son, you get neither the Father or the Son. And you definitely aren't getting the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's real simple. Romans 8, 16 says... The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Galatians 4, 6, being sons of God, he has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Daddy. There's one body, one spirit, just as you are called, the one hope of one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. One head. One meteor, one body, one father, one church, Jew and Gentile. If someone wants to get an audience with a very important person, they must be in contact with the person that gives access to that important person. If they're not in line with them, they'll never get in. Try as they may. So the key is the Son for salvation. That gives you the Holy Spirit. He ushers you before the presence of God. And you get to the Father. Wow.
the Holy Spirit is in the life of the believer is the identifying mark of ownership by the Father and the Son. Listen to Second Corinthians one twenty two, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee or a down payment. Literally, you can call it an engagement ring. Ephesians one thirteen, in him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Both of those scriptures, seal, goes back to the culture, where you would put a seal on the stuff that you had on board. You were shipping marketing. Uh, merchandise, you would put your seal on it, and when it came to the port, you'd send your slave down, your servant, and he would look at all this, the stuff on, on the dock, and whatever had your seal was yours. It has nothing to do with eternal security. It has to do with being property of the owner. Alright? That's what it's identifying. The believer is given specific instructions about the Holy Spirit. Listen to him. Acts 7.51, the Holy Spirit can be resisted by the unbeliever for salvation. Stephen is speaking. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. So the non-believer resists the Holy Spirit. Rejects it. The believer is not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we are sealed for the day of redemption to bring pain, being disobedient. That's what grieving means, Ephesians 4.30. We bring pain. When your child disobeys you as a parent, it pains you. It may anger you too, but it pains you. The believer is not to quench the spirit, to limit what he wants to do in and through us. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. He already told us in this prayer in Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 that we might yield ourselves to the incredible power of God once it's due in us. You see, the believer can say no to the Holy Spirit also. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. In the day of a trial in the wilderness, Hebrews 3, 7 through 8. He's talking to Christians. Do not harden your heart. So we can grieve it. We can quench it. We can harden our hearts as believers. Those are very clear instructions. What we're not to do against the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus gave one spirit to Jew and Gentile. No difference. Paul's declaration of the victorious announcement of this good news is evident by these three truths. Jesus preached one message to Jew and Gentile. Jesus presented one mediator for Jew and Gentile. And Jesus poured out one spirit on Jew and Gentile. <laughs> Nothing has changed. It's the same old powerful gospel. Able to do what it says. It desires to do and can do. Wow. Jesus. Prince of Peace.
There's no other way we can have peace. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. We thank you for tonight, Lord, and we pray that you continue to deal with our hearts. Thank you for your word, and Lord, help us to obey you, to die to self, and we learn how to do good warfare, Lord, as the enemy would attempt to trip us up, our own flesh, the world. And the Lord, we would um, do good warfare. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, whether you're here over the balcony or on the balcony or over the Internet, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You alone can make that decision. God loves you. He wants to forgive you of your sins. He wants you to understand that you're under the wrath of God. Because you, as well as I, fall short of the glory of God. And that you might see yourself as an enemy of God. Not one who is seeking God. And that God is convicting you of your sin because you need to confess and repent from them so he can give you a new heart and change your life by grace through faith. If this is your desire and your decision, you can say this prayer right where you sit. And God will save you right now. And give to you eternal life. This is your prayer if you want to be born again. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.